0: Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. But well, We really are being called higher, deeper in our journey with Christ, and living that out is a part of what Peter is trying to help us understand in this series, Walk the Talk. Last week in this series, we, we walk through the second part of the first chapter of First Peter and discover that God has called us to, to follow Christ in, in, in something called being holy, being different or set apart from the rest of the world and that lives itself out through loving the world around us. And we do that as God transforms our lives, making us different. And, and, and in being different that means that we don't go along with the culture, uh, we make God and his, his word the source, the foundation of our faith, our beliefs, our actions. And as we'll see this morning, Peter doesn't call us to this, this kind of lifestyle, to act on our own, to do it all by ourselves, but, but to always do it as a part of a community of faith, a spiritual family, and to do it as the family for the world. It's not just for us, it's for the world around us. So he begins in the second chapter here, telling us things that we need to to get rid of in our lives to show ourselves to be different from the world around us and and to show what true love looks like. So open your Bibles, if you have it with you, open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter two, uh, and that's near the end of the New Testament. Um, If you have your mobile device, go to the YouVersion Bible app and open the live page. And we you have neither of those, we have the, the insert in the bulletin that you can take, uh, pull out that has p- the scriptures and places for notes in there. Beginning then in the chapter 2, verse 1, Peter writes, Therefore, in other words, he's looking back at what is, he's just been talking about in chapter 1. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind, and, and he says this because he understands that these kinds of practices damage so, unfortunately, the, the good that Christians do through the love of Christ. And he wants his readers to, to take those things out of their lives, to, to diminish them. And, and his readers, we were certainly he was writing to, to folks in the first century, but he's writing to us too. He's, he, these, these, these issues, these, these practices are no less of an issue for us today as it was in the first century. It's so easy for us to harbor ill will and malice toward others, maybe because they've hurt us, but but maybe, maybe because we haven't been the best we could be and have drawn some of that out of them. Deception is too common and hypocrisy is one of the biggest complaints there is about followers of Jesus Christ. It's been said, the number one reason that, that People come to faith in Christ is because of other Christ followers, other believers, because they see in them something that they value, they want, they want to experience it for themselves. But at the same time, that same pool of people who has not come to faith says the number one reason they don't come to faith is because of other Christians. Because in that pool they see people professing one thing and doing something different. Being as mean or as heartless or as conniving or as backstabbing as the rest of the world. And so they're saying, rightly so, if, if those who claim to be Christians are no different from the rest of us, why should we even bother? It's a dangerous place to be. It's a sad place to be. You know, we have to realize as followers of Jesus Christ, we're better than no one else. But we've discovered that by the grace of God, we're forgiven. And that, that ought to humble us. That, that we haven't been so great. We haven't been that. We have no reason to be arrogant and, and no reason to be hypocritical because we have been forgiven so much. Peter warns against envy. Envy which is so hard today when we see rampant consumerism around us and and people getting stuff and we think, I I want that too because surely that's the the ticket for moving up in this world and and finding the best this world has to offer. And all we have to do is is open any of our mobile devices or go on television or look at the paper. And we see people constantly encouraging us to get this, buy that, get involved in this if you want. You know, that somehow you and I deserve that stuff. Like, it's the answer, and we just don't, we just don't have enough of it yet. But unfortunately, it's not a question of having too much, it's a question of, if we get into that trap, we find ourselves on one of those hamster wheels, you know? We're constantly chasing, but we're never getting very far, getting anywhere. It's also easy for us to slander or gossip about others. If someone says something against us, we wanna We want to fire back. We think, they did it to me. That ought to give me the right to do it back. And yet, Jesus never called us to that lifestyle, and Peter is warning us against it. Peter says, all these behaviors are destructive, to our efforts to be holy and to be unlike the world around us and to be loving. And yet it's naive to believe that we can simply eliminate something that, that like it's just I'm gonna stop doing that and that's all there is to it. You know, there's an old saying, nature abhors a vacuum. And all that simply means is that when you take, try to take stuff away and you create a, a void, something else is going to typically try to come in and take it. And so if we simply try to take away some bad behaviors in our lives and we don't replace them with good behaviors and, and practices of faith, then we're inviting some of those things. To come. Jesus even told a parable about that of a, a demon being kicked out and he wanders around, and when he finds that nothing has taken his place in that person, he not only comes back, but he brings seven more of his demon friends to come back in. And that's the reality in all of our lives. Nature abhors a vacuum. If we do nothing, it's likely a whole other set of destructive behaviors will come in. But if we're intentional, we let, we let God help us replace those bad things with good. And so Peter goes on in verse 2 to say, like newborn babies... Crave spiritual milk. He's telling us here's where we should be going as we eliminate. Now, create, he wants us to, to crave the good stuff, the stuff we were actually created for to replace the bad. Sometimes in the New Testament, the, the analogy is used of babies to depict someone who's young in their faith, immature in their faith. Uh, Paul does it some. It's, we find it in Hebrews. Interestingly, that's not the picture that Peter is painting for us today. Instead, he is reminding us, what is it that babies want? What is it that, if you have an infant, if you have a newborn, that after a little while, if you don't, what, feed them and feed them mother's milk, they, get, they begin to get upset. They begin to cry. There is, a, there is a God-given natural craving within all of us as we were born to desire that, and, and as He is doing it here. Peter is saying that deep kind of desire should characterize Jesus' followers in their seeking God and his word, that it's something we were created for as well. And it may not be something we recognize or we we have the conscious ability that it's that important, but Peter is saying, go after this. This is what you were made for, to go after God's word, spend time in it every day, studying, talking about it with others, letting it it fill a deep if unrecognized need in every one of us to know God better. What we know today is that there is nothing better for that infant than his or her mother's milk because it was made. God created moms to create that milk, to provide that baby what that baby needs. Peter is, is telling us this, this life-giving milk given by our mothers who birthed us, who love us so much, is something we need that even if we don't, don't know how, know that, and, and he's saying in analogy that this Bible has been given to us by our loving God, our creator, the, 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 our mother and father, with, with exactly what you and I need in order to grow. And Peter reminds us that is in fact the point, to grow. To, to stay a baby is not natural and normal for an infant, and to stay a baby in the Christian faith is not natural and normal. But if, you're, if you don't feed our souls, if you don't give us what we need, we won't grow any deeper in our relationship with God. And he's saying, he's telling us, he's informing us, he's painting this picture for us that what we need is the word of God. That is the thing that even if I can't state it, I can't understand it, fully it is what we need and the and Bible has been given to us to grow it. So he says in the rest of verse two, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. It is the spiritual food you and I need to grow, to grow to become all Jesus created called us to be, that God created us to be. And we can begin to experience some of the first fruits of it now, but, but we won't get the full experience until Jesus returns in the future, when he destroys evil and sin, we meet him face to face. He reminds, Peter reminds his readers that they can do this because they've already had some sense of the goodness. He's clearly speaking to followers of Jesus Christ. And so if that's not where you are when he says this, that doesn't make, maybe make much sense to you because obviously if you haven't made that decision, you haven't experienced some of that goodness. But he is writing to Christians who have, and so he says to them in verse three, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Right there he's telling us it is an experience that we have to go through. And he is quoting King David who wrote this a thousand years earlier in Psalm 34. This is what David wrote in the beginning of the eighth verse. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his godly people. For those who fear him will have all they need. And, and Psalm 34 begins in, in, in talking about how we trust God in tough times and, and experience His salvation. And it leads David, the writer, to make this psalm really a declaration of, of joy. He's using the word of God. In other words, he is quoting two his readers the Word of God to encourage and strengthen his readers, which is exactly then what he is encouraging them to do in an ongoing way, and as, and as us as well. And yet, if we don't spend time in God's Word, if we don't read it, if it's not something we know very well, or we don't know tools to find what we need, then it, it, it doesn't work for us. I mean, how can you, if, if I tell you there's so, so much good in here, if you've never read it, how can you know what it what it can do what it can speak to you how God can use that to speak right into your life and mind in times when something even may be happening and so he calls us to to do this to use God's word to spend time in it um, there are tools like something called a concordance it, it's available in books, but it, it, some of your Bibles have it at the end of your Bible. Uh, it's also available digitally online, and it's something where you look up a particular word because maybe you remember a quote that you kind of heard somewhere and you can't remember the whole thing, and you remember a couple of the words, you can look them up in the concordance and find them. It's actually easier nowadays digitally online than it is in, in terms of finding in a book, but that's there. But in, in addition to that, in your, uh, on our, our Gateway's website, on the Find It page, i put a list of just three websites of lists of biblical topics. So let's say you're dealing with some adversity in your life or you're dealing with some issues with your kids or in another relationship or some integrity issues. What does God have to say? Then those lists and others like them pull together these scriptures to speak to us. And in the long haul, for those of you, especially who have good memories, you may even want to memorize a lot of these things so that as you go through life, you can call upon those scriptures. You're gonna call upon God's word to speak his truth into your life versus what you're experiencing going on around you. Paul, Peter understands that, that we experience this and we need this. And we we find this help often one-on-one, but he says we find even more help when we're together with the community of faith. Because if I can't remember it, maybe you can, or someone else can remind me where to find it. And so now. As Peter goes on in this passage, he turns to the importance of the church in all this, and using some pictures, some metaphors, if you will, drawn from, from the Jews' Bible, which was what we would call today is the New Test—I mean the Old Testament—and at the same time, he kind of goes from writing to us as individuals to then talking to us as a group. In verse four, he says, "As you," and that's a plural "you," "as you come to Him." the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. And Peter speaks here of coming to the living stone. Here he's talking about Jesus. Rejected, crucified on the cross, rejected by Jewish leaders, rejected by the Romans, and yet still the chosen one, by the only one that ultimately matters, God himself. And it's kind of an interesting contrast because Peter's name, Peter, in Greek means rock, and so he's talking about rock, stone, so is he talking about himself here? No, it's clear that he's not talking about himself. He's talking about Jesus, and he grounds this image of Jesus as this living stone in, in the Old Testament. Isaiah 28, 16 said, so this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, which is named for Jerusalem, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, For a sure foundation, the one who trusts will never be dismayed. Isaiah prophesied this 700 years before Peter's writing. And his his readers then would have believed he was talking about the nation of Israel. But as Peter picks this up and as he quotes this and other scriptures, what he wants to show them is, is that these scriptures, though they were written before the time of Christ, in fact are pointing to Christ, to Jesus himself, as the fulfillment of these verses and these prophecies. And those who now follow Jesus join him in his mission. He says in verse five, you also, again plural, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ is the living stone, if you will, but his followers also symbolically are Peter says, living stones, being built together as a spiritual house. He keeps using the word living when he attaches it to stone. That would have struck his readers as unusual because in his day and time, people thought of stone, and especially people who come to faith in Christ, stone and, and wood were often what were used to make uh, idols. There were whole businesses. In Ephesus, they made idols for the, the god Artemis. and there were, there were whole businesses in that day and time where they, they used... Uh, 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 expensive metals and expensive woods to create these little idols that you would take and you would put on a little stand in your house and that would be your God. And yet, what the Christians kept saying is, those idols are dead, there's nothing to them. They're useless, they're just pieces of rock and stone. And yet, a living stone is a contrast from these pagan idols and it contrasts for us today. What are some of the stones or the, what are some of the idols that we set up, like, like money, like power, like uh, prestige, like moving up the, the job ladder, like having certain things that, that somehow are gonna make me. Again, it's taking something in Adam and something that is lifeless and somehow making it a God for us, making it something of value, and he's saying that, that never works. The only only stone that matters is a living stone. And it's such a contrast. And these living stones are being put together to build a spiritual house, showing us a picture of the the collective nature of the church coming together as each stone is, is put in its right place to build. You know, think about this. Single stones lying around are nothing more than rubble. They, they, they don't add anything. They don't make something different. They're just lying around. It is only when you collect them together, when sometimes you shape them and you place them together on top of one another that you begin to build a wall and ultimately a home. Christianity has, has never thought of itself as this individualistic faith, this this idea that it's all about me and how I live my life. It's always been from Old Testament all the way into the New Testament. The the images so often are of the community of faith. So that really the idea of a Lone Ranger Christian, of someone who's out there trying to make it on their own, they don't need the church, they don't need anybody else, is, is quite honestly, biblically, an oxymoron. You cannot have a Lone Ranger Christian We are called to live in community together. And he uses that image here of of a spiritual house, of the stones, the living stones coming together to build that house, all all of us together. He also talks about a holy priesthood. Priests in the Jewish faith were the ones who, who... interceded between human beings and God to mediate the, 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 the gulf between them, if you will. And even in, in, in some faiths today, it's still seen that there's a, a need for a mediary. But Peter says, now, we are those priests. We are the holy priesthood, set-apart priesthood, going to God ourselves, offering the sacrifice of our obedience to God, and at the same time then sharing that with others to bring others outside of Christianity to to Christ as a part of our priestly duties, that they help them to receive forgiveness and receive grace for living. God calls you and me to be spiritual intermediaries. Not in the sense that people have to go through me or you or, or any other human being in order to talk to God, but instead, oftentimes, you and I can take their hand and walk them through that relationship so that they can find it for themselves. It's not just about letting somebody else do it for them because ultimately, no one else can live your faith for you. No one else can profess your faith for you. No one else can have a relationship for you with God. But you and I can help others find that relationship. And he invites us to do that, to be those, those, that, that priestly function of bringing people to God, inviting those around us to church, sharing our faith story with people. These are great pictures of what it means to be living stones and holy priests. And these are all acts of worship that God loves for us to do. Peter continues with his stone metaphor, now actually quoting directly from Isaiah 28:16, He says in verse six, for in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The apostle Paul, in fact, uses some of this same kind of language. So it's, we're pretty confident that this was the way that the early church often thought about who Jesus was, that he's not just the living stone, but he was also the cornerstone. You know, whenever you, you start to build something or, or you start to draw something, you have to have a starting point. And if you don't pick the right starting point, it can create all kinds of problems. 400 year plus years ago, when, when James Town was formed, they, their starting point was in a swamp. People, d- it didn't go very well. You know, people who build homes in low places, everything seems fine until the storms come. Where you start, where you lay that first stone, is critical to the rest of what you will build. It's why we encourage you to bring your children as well as yourselves to church so you start laying that foundation stone. Because once you lay that stone, once you put it in place, then you start building off of it. You go off in different directions from it. But it is the anchor point. It's the place where it all begins. And here Peter is quoting again from the Old Testament saying that Jesus is this cornerstone. The first stone laid for any building sets the placement of all the others. And so the whole house, the, the, the spiritual house, is dependent on a cornerstone. And that cornerstone is Jesus and As Isaiah originally put it, Peter says that each one who trusts in him, in Christ, will never be put to shame. doesn't mean our lives won't be easy, but it means that that day when we stand before him face to face, we're not going to be asked, why did you invest in those dead stones? He's going to say, I see that you built your life on the rock, on the living stone, on the cornerstone of my son Jesus Christ. And he, we will be vindicated. There are people who laugh at you and me today. They're wondering why you bother being in church. They're saying, look, man, you ought to be out, you know, getting ready for the Texans game. Or you need to be going out to the beach or whatever the case may be. And, and so anytime you and I do something different they're questions in some people's minds. And Peter keeps reminding us that one day we will stand before God, all of us, and some will not be vindicated for their choices. But those of us who have chosen him and choose to follow him and have made it the focus of our lives promises us that there will be vindication. He, he, he goes further in this, uh, for those who've begun to experience rejections. He says in verse seven, now you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, then he quotes, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Jesus Christ, that, that cornerstone, the capstone, is, is precious to his followers because it's through him that we experience spiritual redemption from sin and death, the promise of salvation, that makes us precious to God, and as we demonstrate our faith, as we trust him more. But Peter reminds us of the concern for for those who don't believe, that they have rejected that stone, that foundational stone for the way life was created to work, And, and he quotes more scripture here from Psalm 118. He says, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You know, early on when you are building and you have placed your cornerstone in place and the house is not fully built, people are gonna question, what is it gonna look like? Is it gonna be much of anything? They say, I put mine over here and it looks so much better or it's so much easier. But he says, there will be that day when those builders rejected the cornerstone. But you will see how wonderful it is. Peter repeats this psalm affirming Jesus' mission and purpose where all and always God's plan is doing. And those who don't get it, and he's certainly pointing to the Jews of that time, also Gentiles or people who don't believe, who fail to grasp what, they're, what God is doing are missing out on God's best. Again, quoting from Old Testament scripture to show that there are consequences for them and us when we reject that cornerstone. Peter says in 8, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. We were created for that, to obey Jesus. He quotes, he's quoting here again from Isaiah. He will keep you safe, but to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble, a rock that makes them fall. It's, it, it's not just that builders, meaning anyone building a life for themselves, have simply made a choice not to use God's cornerstone, Jesus Christ. It means they've, they've neglected that completely and, and not using that is gonna allow them or force them to build the wrong house in the wrong place because Christ as God's living word is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the living embodiment, of how you and I were created to live and when we go against God's plan, his creation, There are always consequences. Do all the consequences display themselves right away? No. Sometimes we don't see them for a long time. Sometimes we won't even see them in this life. But there are consequences. Life simply doesn't work the best it can, especially for eternity. Though the voices of the world around us scream that their way is best, their way is safe, their way is fun, their way is easy. Faithful followers of Jesus, will be vindicated on the day of his return. And yet Peter cares so much for all these folks because he understands that that every person, not just all of us, every person has a choice and that those who have turned their back on Christ will stumble, as he said in verse six, and will experience shame before God. And it's not that Peter is one of these guys that says, well, I, I would love for them to see what's coming to them. I would love them to get theirs. He's saying even those who have rejected us, even those who have, do not understand, we are called as living stones to invite them in, to be a part of God's spiritual house because God loves them too. He loves all of us, he cares about all of us enough that, to offer Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And then he does kind of a summary here as we get to verse nine. Again, using Old Testament pictures, he says, But you, talking to the faithful, to those who are following Jesus, said you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God so that or that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. He's saying those of us who have made that decision, there's something wondrous about us. He's affirming, using language that the Old Testament always used about the Jews, to say that now these Gentiles and some Jewish Christians, excuse me, who have made this choice, who prior were on the outside, but now have made this choice, that now they, the church, we, the church, a body of people together, are now, we're the continuation of God's covenant. We are the Israel, the new Israel. Paul said that the the real children of Abraham were not those who could trace their genetic line, but instead those who could trace their faith line. That 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 is what makes us God's chosen people, that God's royal priesthood, a holy nation. Jesus Christ is the promise and fulfillment of all the teachings of the Old Testament so that those who follow him are, are the ones who are actually following in the true steps of Israel that the covenant that was laid out for Abraham back at Genesis, that you would, I will be your God and you will be my people, that there will be, you will have more descendants than there are sands of the sea or stars of the sky, it was not gonna simply be because of your ancestry by blood, but your ancestry by the blood of Christ, by faith. Jesus Christ is that person who calls us to this, to be a holy nation, set apart, to be different from the world because the world has its ways that don't fit. We've been made holy by grace and we're to resist the temptations to conform. We are people belonging to God. And yet the point of all this isn't simply so that we can withdraw out of the world. Well, the world is against us and and there's things that people are saying, so the easiest thing for to do is just let's retire to a holy huddle, let's go off to our communities by ourselves, let's live our lives apart from all that. But the point of all this isn't simply to withdraw out of the world because Peter says, we are called to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into this wonderful light. How can we declare his praises if nobody's around? How can we declare his praises to those who need to heard? if we've withdrawn ourselves from the very places where it is needed most. Jesus said we are to be the light of the world, to live differently as agents of a new kingdom in this world, as witnesses to God's grace, as people who have been saved by grace through faith, not because we're better, because we aren't, but because God has offered us his love and grace to us, to all, and we, thankfully, have made a choice to receive it. But that choice isn't true for everyone. Many haven't. There's still, the Bible says they're living in in a darkness. They don't even recognize, but through Christ and his witness, through you and me, his wonderful light can shine into their darkness to help them discover. Why do you think it is that people often are hard on Christ followers? Because there is a light that shines through you that often illuminates the dark places in their lives. And when there is darkness, If we're not ready to have it illuminated, then we try to put out the light or scurry from it. What happens when you turn the light on in your garage in the middle of the night? You hear some little scurrying, or or unfortunately, maybe in your kitchen. There's that scurrying because they don't want to be exposed to the light. Human beings are the same way. Many of us were that way. Once, that was us. So there's danger in shining the light because people see things they don't want to see. They experience things they don't want to experience. The good news is Christ is enough for whatever it is. We are to declare his praises. Peter never calls Christ followers out of the world because we have a mission that can only be accomplished in the world. He calls us into earthly holy huddles like we are here today, but only so that we can take the plays out onto the field. It's not about, I wanna reside in a holy huddle all the time, I wanna, I wanna always feel good about that. Man, there is no one who ever won a game in the huddle. The Texans will not win today in the huddle. They may not win anyway, <laughs> but we're hoping but the good news is that no matter what happens there, I mean, the, the, the game is always one when the clock's ticking, when the game's on, when we're out on the field. And the field begins as soon as you walk out these doors. Jesus said the fields are ripe for harvest. The problem is there aren't enough to gather it in. And Peter is calling us to be light and salt in the world today to go out into the world, to be in an encouragement, to shine the light in the darkness, and, and to be the church. He keeps coming back to this, calling us as Christ followers that we are part of something special, something eternal in the church. And yes, we make a mess of it sometimes. No, we're not perfect. Every single one of us, including me, can point to failings in any church that we've ever been a part of. Why? Because it's made of people. And if you, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. Because you'll make it imperfect. you know? That's never been the point of the church. It has always been the point, point to take the, the light, to keep our focus on Christ, to rid ourselves of the harmful, destructive behaviors that he mentions in verse one, so that less and less our witness is not compromised and the community of faith is strengthened. So he says here in verse 10 finally, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Those sound like great words, but those are also that's also a direct quotation from the prophet Hosea hundreds of years earlier as an encouragement, because he was talking about the people of Israel. And now Peter is p- applying that to these primarily non-Christian, or, or non-Jewish Christians because they weren't ever a part of the chosen people, not by blood or anything. They had no real eternal family. They lived their, part, their lives apart from God, but now through Christ, the mercy of God has been extended beyond just the Jews, extended to all people, to what the Jews thought were the outsiders, and yet that was never God's plan. But God wants them to receive mercy to, to now join in God's people. And and as we join in by faith, no one can take that away from us. That's why we sang from Romans 8. It says nothing can take away that that from us. We are God's people to live for and live like Christ, to shine his wonderful light that we've received into a sin-sick world that seems to be ever spiraling downward. God's chosen people truthfully, biblically, always had this mission but too often didn't claim it. Again, the prophet Isaiah, the Lord says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. All the way back in Old Testament times, this was always the plan, but Jews had become so insular and thought it was all about us and Christianity was came along to break that apart. Every time you think Christianity is about a holy huddle of coming in on my own and taking care of myself, then you are falling back into the into the the tragedy and and the sins of the Jews, instead of reaching out and being the people of faith of light and salt into the world to be a living hope. Uh, Pastor Kirby John Caldwell. Uh, quoted this from from another source. He said, there are two great moments in a person's life. The moment you were born, and the moment you realize why you were born. Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, very first page says it's not about you. You turn on television, you read the paper, you listen, everybody can say it is about you. What do you have, how are you getting ahead? How are you getting the most? And we fall into that trap. The greatest moment is when you realize why. I'm not here for myself. I'm here for the sake of others. I am here to be salt and light, to reach out, to walk the talk, to eliminate hypocrisy, deception and envy, to be Christ's light, to shine brightly into the dark places and draw those around us into the eternal family, the spiritual house, the church, We walk the talk by inviting, by helping people come and experience his grace. We also walk it by being publicly baptized because it is a witness, it is a testimony, it is saying, I stand now for Christ. Do you have to be baptized in order to be saved? No, nothing in the Bible says that. But Jesus told us to do it, so it is an act of obedience because he wants his people to know who they are and whose they are. He wants us to be grounded in the truth. And so we encourage baptisms of those who have professed their faith in Jesus Christ. We're doing it today at five if you haven't done it. Because the calling for us is to live out our baptism as people chosen by God, by His grace, when we didn't deserve it, to take the light out into the world, to be salt and light. Yes, it puts pressure on us because when people know who you are, they will sometimes judge us or they won't understand or they'll say even more negative things. It's harder, guys. It's much harder, but it's also more right. If you've chosen to make Christ your Savior and Lord, and you haven't been baptized, right after this service down in our Life Center, we have a class, just a few minutes, we'll tell you what's involved to do that today. If you haven't professed your faith in Christ, our prayer team will be right down here and they'd love to talk with you about that. We'd love to talk with you about that because we believe that is the difference this world needs. For you to be a part of God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, set apart for the work of God, to change the world. You hear? To change the world. But if you and I retreat into our holy huddles, if we act like I've done my deed by being in church on Sunday, we've done almost nothing. Christianity is not a solitary religion. We do it as a community of faith together, but it is also a faith that calls us to live it out. It's a lifestyle, not a one-time event. How do you live it out? What are you going to do today, tomorrow? That's where the rubber meets the road. That's where Peter's words really speak to us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your grace is incredible, that you loved us, you claimed us, you called us, into your wonderful light to make us living stones as a part of your spiritual house. You've asked us to put behind some of the destructive habits and patterns of our lives and instead live by your grace. And that's really the truth, Father. We can't do it on our own. We need your spirit at work in us, but we need the community of faith together to join arms, to walk that out into our world, to live it right where we are. Not that we have to make a big deal out of it. We just have to be holy. Live for you in each moment, in each place. Knowing that we're not alone. You are with us. And we are part of a spiritual house that together joins in this mission. We pray that you'll help each of us leap from this place today and be of service to you for the sake of your kingdom we pray in jesus name amen god bless you go out there make a difference to learn more about us visit www.gateway-community.org welcome to your journey